Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The Roaring Twenties are often both romanticized and condemned as being an era of opulence and excess in the United States. On the surface, Americans seemed happy, carefree, and even a little irresponsible. This atmosphere spawned more than lavish parties and big band hits. It also inspired envy. Everyone wanted to strike it rich, and nothing seemed off-limits. While the stock market ticker soared, so did organized crime. Understaffed police stations around the country, as well as the recently formed Bureau of Investigation, now known as the FBI, struggled to keep up with an influx of reports. Murders, robberies, and kidnappings were on the rise, but the national attitude remained deceptively optimistic. It took a bombshell of a case to change everything. On December 15, 1927, the 12-year-old daughter of a middle-class banker was abducted. Little Marion Parker's disappearance captivated the country, and her tragic fate showed Americans that no child was truly safe. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm your host, Carter Roy. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free, exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on Marion Parker, a 12-year-old Los Angeles girl who was abducted and murdered in 1927. This week, we'll discuss her kidnapping and the frantic race to rescue her from her captors. Next week, we'll cover the police investigation into Marion's death and the headline-grabbing trial that followed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. 
She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Twelve-year-old Marion Parker and her twin sister Marjorie practically skipped out of the house on the morning of December 15, 1927. Their school was having a Christmas party, and the girls couldn't wait to join the celebration. But Marion never got a chance to enjoy herself. Around noon, a mysterious, charming young stranger stopped by the school office to pick her up early. He found a dedicated teacher named Mrs. Holt manning the front desk, keeping track of who entered and exited the building that day. Can I help you? Yes, I'm a colleague of Mr. Perry Parker at First National Trust and Savings Bank. There's been a terrible accident, and he wants to see his child. I've come to pick up his daughter. My God, that's awful. But who are you here to see? Both of Mr. Parker's girls are in class right now. His youngest daughter. Marion? Yes, that's her name. The poor girl. I'm sorry, but normally we need the parents here to take the children out of class. I totally understand. Under normal circumstances, I wouldn't be here. But this is an emergency. Her father asked me to come. You can call the bank and check if you like. Uh, I suppose we shouldn't dally at a time like this. I'll go grab Marion. She'll be right out. Thank you, ma'am. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Marion left with the stranger a few minutes later. Neither she nor Mrs. Holt asked too many questions. The man was calm, dignified, and didn't appear to be the least bit nervous. He seemed so trustworthy that Mrs. Holt didn't even bother to tell Marjorie her sister had been called out of class. That afternoon, the shy little girl waited for Marion outside of the school. When a homeward-bound streetcar arrived like usual, Marjorie faced a dilemma. She was afraid she might miss her ride home if she went back inside to get her sister. Marion had stayed late to help her teachers before, so Marjorie may have assumed that she was cleaning up the aftermath of the school Christmas party. She hopped in the streetcar and rode home without Marion. Her parents were surprised when Marjorie told them her sister was still at school. Mr. Parker phoned Mrs. Holt to see if he needed to come and get his daughter. Mount Vernon Junior High? Hello there, Mrs. Holt. This is Perry Parker. Oh, Mr. Parker, I'm so happy to hear from you. How are you feeling? I'm well, thanks for asking. Is Marion still at the school? She didn't come home with her sister, so I was preparing to drive over and pick her up. She went home with the man you sent from the bank around noon. Man from the bank? I I don't know what you're talking about. I took the day off of work. So, you weren't in a serious accident? Accident? No. And I certainly didn't send anyone to pick Marion up from school. Are you sure she's not still there? Mrs. Holt, are you there? Where's Marion? Mr. Parker, I believe we may have a serious situation on our hands. Mr. Parker understandably panicked after talking to Mrs. Holt. The moment he hung up the phone, his doorbell rang. As he walked toward the front door, he felt his heart catch in his throat. 
Worries spun through his mind. His little girl could be anywhere with anyone. He managed to compose himself just before answering the door. He likely hoped he'd find Marion out front waiting for him, the victim of a simple misunderstanding. Instead, he found his worst fears had come true. A delivery man handed Mr. Parker a telegram that looked like it was signed by Marion. The message was anything but friendly. It read, quote, Do positively nothing till you receive special delivery letter. The Parkers were terrified and confused. They might still have been clinging to the hope that the situation could be resolved soon. Since the telegram was signed by Marion, at the very least it seemed like she was with an adult. But whether it was the stranger who picked her up from school or someone else was unclear. After some debate, the family decided to listen to the instructions for the time being. They didn't call the authorities and instead waited for the mysterious delivery. No package came, but soon after the first telegram was dropped off, the Parkers received another message. This one read, quote, Marion secure, use good judgment. Interference with my plans, dangerous. This time, it was signed George Fox. No one in the house had any idea who that was, but there was no room for doubt. This wasn't some petty misunderstanding. Someone had kidnapped Marion. Her life could be hanging in the balance. Perry Parker and his wife Geraldine agonized over what they should do next. Their first instinct was to go to the police, but they had no idea what to make of the kidnappers. If the Parkers did what they were told and Marion's captors only wanted money, the family hoped things could be resolved peacefully. However, by the morning of December 16th, Mr. and Mrs. Parker were at the end of their ropes. No other messages were sent and there were no more updates on Marion's well-being. The family contacted the police, who arrived just as the promised special delivery finally showed up at the house. It was a ransom note. The kidnapper threatened Marion's life and warned the Parkers not to go to the Los Angeles police. They ordered the family to hand over $1,500 in gold certificates, which at the time were documents certifying gold ownership that doubled as paper currency. Most terrifying of all was that the letter came with a hard deadline. According to the kidnapper, the affair would end one way or the other within 72 hours. In case the Parkers were still in any doubt that the captor meant business, they also included a handwritten letter from Marion. The 12-year-old's message was brief but heartbreaking. She pleaded with her father to do as the kidnappers demanded and wrote that she was afraid she would die soon. Perry Parker and Geraldine could hardly keep themselves together. They worried that they'd jump the gun by contacting authorities, especially if one of the captors was watching the house at that very moment. But at that point, they had no choice but to rely on the police for guidance. Detectives were more than willing to cooperate, especially now that a ransom note had materialized. They agreed to keep the case out of the press for the time being. Hopefully, the kidnapper would believe the Parkers were following their instructions. Playing it cool meant withdrawing the ransom as soon as possible. Mr. Parker did that, then went to work as usual, trying his best to act normal. It was no simple task. Thoughts of his little girl were at the forefront of his mind, but for her safety, he had to suffer in silence. 
The vigorous police investigation was likely his only source of comfort. After speaking with the Parkers, detectives questioned Mrs. Holt, who gave them a detailed description of the man who'd abducted Marion. He had introduced himself as Mr. Cooper, no doubt a fake name. However, he couldn't hide his appearance. Mrs. Holt said that he was a trim man of average height, with brown hair and good hygiene. He gave off the unmistakable air of a man who is smart, articulate, and completely confident. Those exact qualities had allowed him to hoodwink the school so easily. He seemed like a professional with nothing to hide, a viper concealed in plain sight. It was only a matter of time before he bared his fangs. Coming up, the kidnapper makes their move. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. And now back to the story. On December 15, 1927, 12-year-old Marion Parker was abducted from her school. The following morning, her captor sent a ransom letter to her parents, demanding $1,500. Marion's father, Perry, did his best to follow the kidnappers' instructions, while police worked in secret to track down the culprits. Friday, December 16th, was one of the most difficult days of Perry Parker's life. Despite being worried sick for his daughter, he had to go to work at the Los Angeles First National Bank to keep up appearances. With each passing hour, he waited in agony for another message from the kidnappers. It wasn't until he returned home at 8 p.m. that he finally heard from them. Is the money secure? It's here but I want to speak to my daughter. I make the rules, Mr. Parker. Now, get in your car immediately and park on Gramercy Place. I know you're familiar with the spot. Come alone. Now wait just a minute. I need to hear from Marion right now. Hello? The kidnapper didn't give Mr. Parker any time to think or delay. The voice on the phone told him to come alone and Mr. Parker had no intention of provoking them by disobeying. While he had contacted the police before, he had no interest in debating them now. He didn't care about procedure or losing the ransom money. The safety of his daughter was all that mattered. 
And that was what hung in the balance if you let authorities interfere with the plan. Mr. Parker made it to the drop point and waited until 11.45 p.m. for the kidnappers to show. They never did. The tired father's eyes welled with tears. He felt like he'd been staring out at the darkened street for hours without blinking, always hoping the next pair of headlights he saw would deliver his daughter back to him. By the time he gave up and started home, a new emotion mingled with his sorrow. Rage. He was at a loss. He'd followed the instructions exactly. He had to wonder whether Marion's captor was simply torturing him, sending him on a wild goose chase just to watch him squirm. He had no idea who he could have provoked into taking his little girl. He didn't have any enemies as far as he knew. Was it just a game? He certainly didn't know anyone vicious enough to hold an innocent 12-year-old hostage for such a paltry amount of money. None of it made any sense. Mr. Parker racked his brain on the drive back to his house. When he pulled in the drive and the police told him they'd been following him, suddenly everything clicked. What are you doing here so late? We followed you to Gramercy. You... you what? You followed me? Calm down, sir. It's standard procedure. Ransomers have a habit of spying on their targets. We thought we could catch them. I didn't ask you to do that! I went out to meet them! To get Marion back! You should have let us know. It's not safe. He told me to come alone! He must have seen you. You... you ruined everything! I think you're giving this guy too much credit, sir. We were incognito. I... I could have been holding Marion right now if it wasn't for you bastards! Just leave me alone! Unfortunately, the bad news was just beginning. The press got a hold of Marion's story the next morning. The cat was officially out of the bag. The Parkers were left in an awkward position. They must have struggled with some resentment after the planned exchange didn't go through, but they no longer had any choice in involving the police. The LAPD were the only ones who could save Marion now, so the family put their faith in detectives. But it was getting harder and harder to stay optimistic. Sometime on Saturday, Mr. Parker got yet another message from the kidnapper. As expected, they lampooned him for calling the police. It read in part, quote, You'll never know how you disappointed your daughter. She was so eager to know that it would only be a short while before she would be free from my terrible torture. The captor claimed they would give Perry Parker one last chance to drop off the money alone. It was again signed, Fox. Parker's hand shook as he read the note. He tried not to imagine his daughter being held captive in a cold, miserable cell. He had to save her no matter what it took. Over the next few hours, the kidnapper must have decided that their initial message was too harsh. They sent the Parkers two more notes that afternoon, insisting that all they wanted was the money. They didn't want to hurt Marion, and as long as Mr. Parker told the authorities to back off, then the exchange would go off without a hitch. Mr. Parker decided to give in to their demands. He called the chief of detectives to make sure they wouldn't interfere with the handoff a second time. Mr. Parker, we're all ready for the exchange. Mark my words, we'll get Marion back. 
You are not to follow me tonight. Got it? With all due respect, Mr. Parker. I don't want to hear it! You're the reason I still don't have my daughter. I'm going alone. Sir, you're putting yourself in danger. What happens if the kidnappers kill you and take the money? This isn't about me. This is my only opportunity to get Marion back. I'm not taking any more chances. We'll use different cars, different tactics. He won't know we're there. No, this ends tonight. I'm going by myself. That is my final decision. I need your word. <sighs> it's your funeral. Once the police promised not to interfere, there was nothing else to do but wait. The Parkers sat in solemn silence, keeping their eyes on the phone all afternoon, praying for Marion's safety. The call they'd been waiting for came at 7.15 p.m. The man on the phone gave Mr. Parker detailed instructions, not just about where to meet, but each and every road he should take along the way. It took Parker around 15 minutes to reach his final destination. He clutched the ransom money tightly and squinted through his windshield, back to waiting. Cold sweat ran down the nape of his neck and beaded on his starched collar. Every moment without Marion in his arms was an eternity. Mr. Parker sat like that, rigid in the driver's seat for about half an hour before he spotted another vehicle approaching in the darkness. The car pulled up beside him slowly. Gravel crunched under the wheels. At last, it came to a stop. The window rolled down to reveal a man wearing a bandana over his face. He pointed a shotgun directly between Mr. Parker's eyes. Did you bring the money? Yes, here it is. Where's my daughter? I need to see her. The driver moved to the side so Mr. Parker could see Marion next to him. Her body was covered by a blanket, but he could just make out his little girl's face. She didn't move or turn to him. Instead, she just stared straight ahead, dazed. Marion? Marion, are you okay? Why isn't she responding? She's sleeping. Hand over the money. Okay, here you go. I just want my baby back. The driver snatched the money out of Mr. Parker's hands and counted it slowly. Parker looked more closely at his daughter. Her eyes were wide open, so he knew she wasn't sleeping. He thought maybe the man sedated her somehow. All that mattered was getting his little girl back. After what seemed like forever, the driver finished counting the gold certificates. He put the car in drive, pushed Marion out of the passenger side door, and sped off into the night. Mr. Parker leapt out of his car and rushed to Marion's side. She seemed so small, covered by the blanket. He pulled her in close before abruptly loosening his grip and letting go. A creeping horror made its way up his spine. Marion? Marion? He reached down and pulled the blanket aside. <gasps> Mr. Parker was only holding half of his daughter. Her body had been cut in two at the waist. Her forearms and legs were gone. Upon closer inspection, it became clear that the little girl's eyes had been sewn open with thread to make it look like she was awake. Her face was splotched with garish rouge to cover the deathly pale of her skin. Ah! 
It took a moment for the horrible reality to sink in. The gore was too terrible to imagine. Mr. Parker screamed and clutched his daughter's remains close to his chest. He wailed so loud that strangers came out of nearby buildings to see what was wrong. When police arrived, even the most veteran officers choked back sobs and sickness. They had failed, and a little girl was dead. Mr. Parker told police what he knew about the kidnapper's vehicle and outward appearance, and then went home to grieve with his family. While the Parkers mourned, authorities performed an autopsy on Marion's remains. The coroner, Dr. A.F. Wagner, lived next door to the family. He said it was one of the most difficult post-mortems he'd ever done. Dr. Wagner found a two-and-a-half-inch cut made by a knife on top of Marion's left shoulder. A towel was stuffed in her abdomen as well as part of a man's shirt to stem the tide of blood. Her eyelids had been stitched open with very thin wire. Beyond the knife wound in the shoulder and the obvious dismemberment, Dr. Wagner didn't see any evidence of a struggle. He estimated that Marion had been killed about three hours before the meeting with Mr. Parker. While the coroner finished his exam, the police organized a massive manhunt. Mr. Parker identified the killer's car as a Chrysler Coupe, which authorities found abandoned in a nearby parking lot. The parking attendant claimed the driver told him he would be back for the vehicle the next day. Prints and other evidence were taken from the car and sent to the lab. In the meantime, officers kept a close watch on the coupe, hoping the murderer would return for it soon. But the next morning only brought more bad news. While out for a walk, a man stumbled upon four bundles of newspaper in Elysian Park. A disembodied arm was stuffed inside one, prompting the man to call the police. Each of the macabre packages contained one of Marion's missing limbs. The rest of her remains were found soon afterward. The coroner immediately set to work examining the findings, but failed to glean any new information. Meanwhile, 7,000 officers and over 10,000 volunteers offered their help with the search for the killer. The murder of Marion Parker had become a national headline, and people everywhere stepped up to help capture the murderer. Thanks to multiple massive organizations pitching in, the reward for Marion's killer cleared $100,000, the equivalent of over $1.5 million today. It seemed like the entire country had a personal bone to pick with Marion's kidnapper. No one could ignore the brutal murder of an innocent young girl. All these efforts soon bore fruit. Though the killer never returned to the parking lot, police managed to find the original owner of the Chrysler Coupe, Dr. Herbert L. Mance. His story was chilling and familiar. He said a stranger had taken the keys from him at gunpoint about a month earlier. The thief was a dark-haired man with an eerie calm about him. Dr. Mance said he had no doubt the stranger was prepared to kill him if he refused to give up the car. Authorities were clearly dealing with a cold-blooded criminal. He'd prepared for Marion's kidnapping weeks in advance and was willing to dismember a girl for just $1,500. But he was no mastermind. 
he'd left behind piles of evidence from the ransom notes to the abandoned Chrysler Coupe. Even in 1927, diligent police had ways of identifying suspects. Just days after Marion's murder, authorities caught a break. Fingerprints in the coupe were positively identified. Police hoped they'd finally found their man. Coming up, we'll learn the identity of Marion Parker's killer. And now, back to our story. On December 17, 1927, 12-year-old Marion Parker was murdered and dismembered in Los Angeles. Within a matter of days, police identified fingerprints left in the killer's car as belonging to a man named William Edward Hickman. 19-year-old Hickman had been caught forging checks a few months earlier and had also been involved in several drugstore robberies. Police raced to his apartment in the city, but found Hickman had abandoned it a couple of days prior. Even so, they managed to find plenty of evidence which confirmed their suspicions. A thumbprint on a cereal bowl matched the one lifted from the Chrysler Coupe. There were spots of blood around the apartment, along with razor blades and newspaper articles about Marion Parker's kidnapping. Authorities showed a picture of Hickman to Mrs. Holt, who said she was positive he was the one who'd abducted Marion from school on the 15th. Authorities were all but certain Hickman was their man. But his connection to Perry Parker seemed tenuous at best. Mr. Parker barely knew Hickman at all. The killer had worked as a messenger at the same bank as him, but was fired after the forgery incident. It took some thinking for Parker to recall anything that might have put the two on bad terms. When he did, the calm, creepy voice of the kidnapper suddenly seemed all too familiar. Mr. Parker vividly remembered discussing Hickman's messenger job with him following his firing. Hickman approached Mr. Parker about getting his job back after he was put on probation. Though Parker wasn't in charge of hiring protocol, it seems it fell to him to discuss the matter with Hickman. The killer had the same cold, measured tone over the phone as when Parker told him he'd likely no longer be welcome at the bank. A frightening warning of the terror to come. Police assumed Hickman blamed Mr. Parker for his expulsion from the bank and set out for revenge. But it wasn't exactly an airtight explanation. Mr. Parker had nothing to do with Hickman's firing. He worked as an assistant cashier. Though he discussed the situation with Hickman, Parker remembered it as a completely normal conversation. Even if Hickman did blame Parker for his firing, it seemed like a petty reason to murder and dismember a 12-year-old girl. Detectives guessed that Hickman had developed some kind of irrational obsession with Mr. Parker. Marion often came to the bank with her father while he worked, so Hickman might have first seen her there. Though Hickman's motives were a little murky, all the evidence clearly pointed in his direction. By December 21st, newspapers all over the country had printed his photo. Police were stationed at the border between California and Mexico, while manhunts were conducted in several states where Hickman might have taken refuge. Across the nation, all eyes were peeled. But actually finding the killer was easier said than done. Young white men of average height and dark hair were a dime a dozen. 
tensions were high thanks to the gruesome nature of Hickman's crime. As a result, several innocent men were hauled into police stations and arrested, only to have their actual identities verified hours later. Some were even chased through the streets and beaten by crowds. One unfortunate man, Michael O'Neill, was turned into authorities no less than five times. Detectives had to distribute warning letters to police officers pleading for them not to arrest O'Neill anymore. The false leads burned through valuable police resources and distracted them from their mission. But with so many people invested in finding Hickman, it was only a matter of time before he was caught. On the evening of December 21st, Hickman was spotted in Seattle, Washington. He stopped into a clothing store to buy a hat, a heavy suit of underwear, and driving gloves. The store owner reported the customer looked suspiciously like the mugshot he'd seen in the morning paper. When Hickman paid with a $20 gold certificate taken from Parker's ransom money, his identity seemed beyond doubt. Once Hickman left the store, the owner contacted the police. Blockades were quickly set up around the city, but Hickman somehow slipped through the gaps. It seemed the police were always playing catch-up. The very next day, a man named Frank R. Peck told authorities that Hickman had recently stolen his car. That meant Hickman might have been driving a green Hudson. The news prompted two hitchhikers to bring a tip to police in Portland, Oregon. How can I help you folks? We were picked up by that man wanted for murdering the child. You know, there have been a lot of false sightings of that guy. But we're sure of it. We saw his picture right after he dropped us off. It was him. It was absolutely him. He had a 45 caliber pistol with him. He kept it in his hands, even while driving. And he was very quiet. He seemed to be in a hurry, but he never sped on the road and followed all the traffic rules exactly. Yes. It felt like he was trying to avoid being noticed by the police. Hmm. What kind of car was it? A green Hudson. Well now, you may be on to something. Shortly after that sighting, a gas station attendant in the Seattle area reported another. Hickman had come in and paid with one of his $20 gold certificates. Though there were checkpoints all over the city, the killer was somehow avoiding them all. The reports were becoming ridiculous. It was absurd that Hickman had an entire country looking for him, and yet he still hadn't been captured. Authorities in Oregon decided that they had to be more proactive. A local chief of police set up a trap on a major highway that passed through both Washington and Oregon. If Hickman was headed south, there was no way for him to avoid it. Once again, the only thing to do was wait the chief of police recruited a member of the highway patrol to back him up. The two men sat on the side of the road for hours on December 22nd. It was mind-numbing work, but both officers knew the stakes. They had to scrutinize every single passing car, searching for a green Hudson or anything else suspicious. When they finally spotted the car, the men hesitated. The vehicle in front of them bore Washington license plates, but the Hudson they were searching for had been swiped from California. Even so, it was worth a second look. The officers couldn't make out the driver's face when the car sped by, but they saw he was wearing sunglasses despite the cloudy day. It was enough to pique their suspicions. 
the chief and his partner switched on their sirens and gave chase. It wasn't much of a hot pursuit. The driver pulled over promptly and appeared completely calm when the chief approached. Upon closer inspection, the officer saw there were two other passengers in the car besides the driver. Police approached the Hudson slowly, ready to draw their guns at a moment's notice. Step out of the car, son. Was I speeding? Is that your gun? Yes, it is, officer. I keep it for protection since I pick up a lot of hitchhikers. You don't need to keep it between your knees. Llewellyn, search the car. You got it. What's your name, son? My name is Peck. What's your business? I'm from Seattle, just on my way to see family. Ah, there's a thousand dollars and twenty dollar gold certificates in the car. And on him? Well, well, well. What do we have here? Another pistol and about $65 in cash. You're not Peck. You're Hickman. I knew it was you all along. Cuff him! Fine. You got me. The police had their man. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of the kidnapping and murder of Marion Parker, where we delve into the sensational trial of Edward Hickman and find out what really happened to Marion Parker. For more information on Marion Parker's murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Butterfly in the Rain, the 1927 abduction and murder of Marion Parker by James L. Nybauer to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Tara Wells, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Brian Kim, Drew Lawn, and Rebecca Thomas. Solved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 